Well, good morning uh, again, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Spencer campus of Crosswinds Church. We are excited that you are here with us this morning. I want to begin our time looking at this uh, ninth commandment with a, a story. It's a true story uh, that takes place from uh, several uh, decades ago, 120 or so years ago. It, it comes from 1899. In 1899, a group of reporters in, in Denver decided to gather together uh, at the, the train stop because they were all tasked uh, with writing a Sunday morning uh, new story in the newspaper, and they were hoping, they were pleading that someone interesting would walk off of the train and they would be able to write a story about this person visiting Denver. And so they all are there hoping to find someone so that they can fulfill their quota, but nothing happened. And so these reporters, as they're gathered together, they begin to wonder what they're supposed to do. And then one of them says, well, I'm just going to make up a story. There was a little bit of resistance to that at first, but then the rest of them said, ah, why not? Let's go ahead and join in as well. And they all quickly agreed to craft a story, and they decided that they were going to make it so big that they would actually all receive pats on the back from their, uh, from their editors later that week. Now, of course, a, a local story would be easily found out if it was false. And so they decided to write about something that was far away. And what's further away in the days before flight than China? And so they decided with China in mind that they were going to make this story up about China. And they decided to say that they met on the, uh, at the railway station. That night, they met a group of American engineers who were actually on their way to China to bid for a major job. That the Chinese government actually planned on demolishing the Great Wall of China as a symbol of, of goodwill that they were going to open up their borders to foreign trade. And so they all write their, paper, their stories in the paper, and the next day, they, they go out with headlines such as, The Great China, Chinese Wall is Doomed, or Beijing Seeks World Trade. And the story, of course, is completely made up at this point. It seems to be harmless. There's just one problem. They were taken seriously by other papers, and soon this story was printed in papers throughout the United States, throughout Europe, throughout the entire world. Some say that when the story made its way to China, the, the Chinese government was understandably surprised, and a lot of their citizens were upset when they read that there was this group of Americans that were coming to destroy the Great Wall of China, their, their uh, national landmark. And the political climate in China at the turn of the, the 19th century was, was extremely skeptical toward outsiders. And soon there was actually a group of insurrectionists that began attacking foreign embassies. They began to attack missionaries throughout China. Soon foreign nations intervened. They decided that it was their responsibility to protect their citizens. And this led to a conflict between this group of insurrectionists and foreign governments that led to the, to the deaths of over 32,000 Chinese Christians, several hundred missionaries, and significantly a hostility toward Christianity that exists in China still to this day. This is a moment in history that we can, we can look back, and you'll see it under a specific name. It's called the Boxer Rebellion in China. It was started for many reasons. This is one of the most uh, significant geopolitical moments in modern history. It was started for many reasons, but the spark that ignited the fire was a simple lie told half a world away. Lying occurs on a near daily basis. 
And sure, none of the lies that we've ever told have ended with carnage or changed the shape of international politics for centuries to come, but we would be hard-pressed to find a day where we aren't guilty of telling some white lie, or at least hearing some white lie. And indeed, this proclivity toward lying actually reveals our, uh, our brokenness inside. It's second nature for us, and it starts with a child who is barely able to speak, but who will lie with a straight face to his mom or dad to cover their tracks. Today, we live in a world that doubts whether knowing truth is even possible. We live in a world that says that truth may not actually exist, that we live in a world that any sort of opinion that disagrees with what I believe is labeled as fake news. Pilate's words to Jesus right before his crucifixion probably are the best at summing up a cultural climate for us today, and that is simply, what is truth? This pessimistic understanding of truth means that Nation, uh, that, that companies will hide uh, truth from those who buy things from them. We live in an age where car companies will lie about their emissions. Government officials will make promises that they have no intention of keeping, that people will lie about their ages, people will uh, embellish their resumes, and on and on and on. And this morning, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to look at a commandment that deals specifically with this. We are almost at the end of the Ten Commandments. We've been working through them this summer, and we are on Commandment 9 this morning, looking at the call or the charge for us to not bear false witness. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in verse 16 this morning, just one short verse. Hear these words from Exodus chapter 20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This commandment, This commandment not to bear false witness addresses the dangerous tendency within each and every one of us that we have to manipulate the truth, to stretch the truth, to deny the truth, to twist the truth, so that way it fits our needs, it furthers our agenda, it covers our tracks, and and it serves our own purposes. And as we dive into this commandment, the ninth commandment, it's important for us to remember For us to remind ourselves that the purpose of these commandments is not as a way for us to earn God's favor. Jesus in the Gospels is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And we've looked at this passage several times over the past few months. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus sums up the Ten Commandments by saying this. Mark chapter 12. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In saying this, Jesus is summing up the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments are all about our our vertical relationship with God. They they explain how we are to faithfully or, or consistently love God. They're all about the greatest commandment and show us how to love God. Show us how to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And the last six commandments, including this commandment that we're looking at this morning, are concerned with our relationship with others. Or in other words, they put flesh on how we are to love God or glorify God by showing us how to love others. 
So as we look at this commandment, this commandment not to bear false witness, this commitment to the truth is fundamentally an act of love for your neighbor. And by extension, it is an act of love for your God. But the inverse is also true as well. A habit of lying, a consistent habit of lying shows a disdain for your neighbor and, by extension, a disdain for God. And so as we consider this commandment, consider just four implications from this verse. The first one is this, God is deeply concerned with justice. God is deeply concerned with justice. Now, you might have noticed as we were reading this text, and as I've mentioned a couple times, this prohibition is not directly addressed to the topic of lying. It is specifically concerned with the area of perjury or bearing false witness in a court. Now, this makes good sense if you understand the context of the ancient Near East. The nations surrounding Israel at this time, it was common practice for those who were accused to have very few rights. Today, we think through uh, the rights that those who are accused or uh, accused of a crime, that they are innocent until proven guilty. But in ancient times, you were guilty until proven innocent. Your guilt was assumed. In a day and age that is far from ours, far before forensic science, the word of a witness was essential. But even with this high importance on witnesses, on the word of a witness, many nations only required one witness, one testimony to convict someone of a crime. And oftentimes, the crime was punished by death. Now, it's easy for us to imagine how this system of law would be taken advantage of, which would be abused, right? In fact, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are examples of those who bear false witness, uh, who who pervert justice by breaking this commandment uh, to accomplish their own ends. One of these is 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21 tells us about this wicked king of Israel. His name is Ahab, and it also talks about his neighbor, who is named Naboth. And Naboth has a plot of land right next to the king, and on that land is a vineyard. And the king, this wicked king, desperately wants that property. But Naboth understands the importance of land in God's economy. He understands that that land has been given by God, entrusted by God to his family. And to give up that land is actually a way of denying God's good gifts for him and for his family. And so he rightly refuses to sell it to Ahab. Ahab throws a temper tantrum, and quite literally throws a temper tantrum because he doesn't get his way. And then his wife, Jezebel, who's even more evil and wicked than he is, sees him pouting and basically says to him, oh, grow up, be a man, you're the king, aren't you? You can do whatever you want, you're above the law, I will get you the land. Pick up in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 8. So she, Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. 
And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who, were lived, who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, curse God and the king. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and he was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. This system was so often abused, so often taken advantage of, and so God speaks into it and says, I have some commandments for you to stress the severity of my punishment for those who will be this wicked. In fact, it's not just the ninth commandment. It's not just this commandment not to bear false witness given by God to curb injustice. There are also other commandments that follow suit with this command. It wasn't enough for a person to just be condemned by one witness. There also needed to be two witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 19. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Other safeguards were put into place as well. Witnesses didn't just provide testimony before a person in order to condemn them. They were also in charge of the execution of that person. This may sound barbaric. After all, we don't think of those who serve on a jury also having a responsibility or those who bear witness in a courtroom to have a responsibility of actually executing justice when justice is brought. But this is a really important fact in the Old Testament. It's a very important thing that God sets up. It's one thing for me to lie on a witness stand and say that someone did something wrong to me. It's quite another thing for me to put my money where my mouth is and be the one who starts the punishment, who starts oftentimes the execution of that person because of my own selfishness if I'm bearing false witness. It was a way that God orchestrated things to make sure that the people were actually telling the truth. Consider these words from Deuteronomy 17. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. There's also severe punishment in the Old Testament for bearing false witness before a council. For those who bore false witness, you would be subjected to the same punishment that the accused was being sentenced to. Another passage from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19. The judge shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother." So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So again, if I accuse my neighbor of stealing from me, but it's all a part of this devious plot for me to acquire their land, but I am found out, it is I who will lose my land or I who will actually be killed for bearing false witness against this person. All these commands, starting with the ninth commandment, highlight that God is utterly committed to justice. 
And that's why the first implication of this verse that oftentimes we think of when it concerns lying actually doesn't have much to do with lying at all. It has something much deeper in mind. God is committed to truth and God is committed to justice. And so, of course, that means if any of us have to testify in court not to commit perjury. But it also means that we should be committed to justice on a personal level as well. Consider the words of the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So as we consider this commandment, this commandment not to bear false witness, the first thing we have to ask is, am I committed to justice? Am I committed to the pursuit of justice for the wronged? Am I committed to justice for the oppressed, for the marginalized in my day-to-day life? Or am I someone who takes advantage of others? And though I would never word it this way, am I someone who perverts justice? The ninth command reminds us that God is deeply concerned with justice. That's our first implication from this text. A second implication from this commandment, truth is fundamental for our relationships. Truth is fundamental for our relationships. Trust and trustworthiness are essential for any type of relationship from the most intimate even to the most mundane. A marriage will not work if it is not built on the foundation of truth. And it is true for relationships between coworkers, between friends, between neighbors, and on and on and on. As the popular quote reminds us, a single lie discovered is enough to create doubt in every truth expressed. Truth and trust is fundamental for our relationships. And that's where they must be started on, and that's where they must be built. Last week, I shared an illustration from a pastor in the suburbs of Chicago who helpfully describes these commandments as different railway tracks. The ninth commandment is a track called falsehood, and the last track on the line is a place that is filled with people who have no qualms about bearing false witness, who have no qualms about bearing false testimony or committing perjury, so that way innocent people are put to death. But there are other stations on this line. There are other places where we can be guilty of this commandment without actually going the full distance, where we can have this same problem with falsehood, with dishonesty. And each of these falsehoods, from the greatest to something that seems like it is the least significant, each of them destroys the relationship that we have with others. And so as we consider this commandment, it's important, I think it's appropriate for us to use a definition for lying that uh, really expands our understanding of what is in view here. This commandment could, could say that we are prohibited from any sort of speech that will accomplish a desired result without regard to truth. Any sort of speech that we use where we don't have any regard for truth, but we are going to use it so that way we can accomplish a desired result. In other words, for us, this commandment has in mind that speech just doesn't care about truth. The truth is irrelevant. It doesn't care about our relationships with others. Those are irrelevant. It's only focused on what I can get out of my speech. You see, God gives us this commandment because God actually deeply cares about what we say, and God deeply cares 
about the relationships that we have with others. God places a far greater value on the relationships between each and every one of us than even we place on those relationships. God knows that falsehood, that deceit will erode away those relationships and will leave us with something that the good gift that he intended for us when he gives us relationships. You see, for us, this commandment encompasses something far more than just perjury, far more than just the act of lying. It has something in mind about speech that has no regard for relationships, speech that sees those relationships as only a means to an end for my own purposes. It has speech in mind that doesn't really care about the truth. What only matters is what I can get out of what I say. Speech is used as a weapon. Relationships destroyed all for the pursuit of self. And so when we think of that as being what is prohibited by this commandment, there are several implications from this text, several ways that our speech can be guilty of breaking this commandment. First, of course, is actual lying. It can be perjury, it can be lying to your boss, it can be lying to your spouse, lying to your coworkers, no matter what. It destroys the relationship between you and another person. It destroys the relationship that God actually values, that God actually cares about. Who can forget George O'Leary, the man who landed the dream job at Notre Dame as a coach, one of the most prestigious football programs in the nation, and he lost it before he even coached a game because he had lied on his resume. It shows something about the importance of the truth. His resume, even though he lied on it, the fact that he had lied on it didn't change the fact that he was a good coach. But the fact that he lied destroyed the relationship, destroyed the trust that had been built up or that was there implicit between him and the school, and it was gone. But it's not just lying that is in mind here, in mind here either. This also has in mind little white lies that we tell or, or half-truths that we tell that share part of the story, but they leave out important parts that would probably make us look bad. And it also includes flattery, or, or as one person says, saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. It includes exaggerations that we use to make ourselves look good or to make other people look worse. It's the way that we take credit for things that we didn't accomplish that others accomplished, but we're not technically lying either. It goes further into the ways that we conceal the truth, even while we tell the whole truth. I remember growing up as a middle schooler and as a high schooler, even after I became a Christian, I had this commitment that I was never going to lie to my parents. But I have a very, very, I had, excuse me, a very, very limited definition of what that meant. And so when my parents would ask me something, I would tell the truth, but I would tell the truth, but not the whole truth. I would leave certain things out that I knew would possibly get me in trouble, that would possibly leave me with a less than desirable result. God, forgive me. It's all of these types of speech that God has in mind 
when he gives us this commandment. It also includes for us gossip and slander. Gossip, of course, is the opposite of flattery. Uh, If flattery is uh, saying to a person's face something you never say behind their back, gossip is the opposite. It's saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. And this is in mind in the ninth commandment because it destroys the relationship between people. It uses speech as a weapon to accomplish a desired result. And even if gossip is technically the truth, it breaks this commandment because it destroys relationships and is only focused on the desired result. Just a word on gossip. If, if, if you're worried about what you're saying is gossip or if someone else is saying gossip, the theologian Philip Ryken, he lists three helpful questions to ask as you are thinking of what you're about to say. The first question he says is this, is what I'm about to say true? So obviously don't say anything that isn't true. Second question is this, if so, if it is true, does it really need to be said to this person in this conversation? And of course, if that is also true, then the third question you should ask yourself, if so, would I put it this way if the person I was talking about were here to listen? We should take seriously this commandment and all of its implications, not just when it comes to false witness, not just when it comes to lying, but any time we open our mouth to use our lips, to use our speech in a way that God desires to protect the relationships that God cares so deeply about. And the truth is fundamental for those relationships. A third implication of this commandment is this. Our attitude toward truth reveals our allegiance. Our attitude toward truth reveals our allegiance. This commandment is given to us by God and matters to him because at its bedrock, at its core, is a question. Who holds our ultimate allegiance? We never have to wonder about God. Is he going to be deceitful? Is God telling the truth? Is he only using half-truths? Is he leaving important details out? Is he exaggerating? Is he stretching the truth to make himself look better than he actually is? The book of Titus, Paul is describing the, the assurity that we have that God is going to keep his promises. And he says that God has never lied, never will lie, and that's one of the reasons why we can be sure God is going to keep his promises. It says this in Titus 1, in hope of eternal, God, of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised us before the ages began. The same is found in, in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews uses the exact same argument. He says that God's trustworthiness is evidence of the coming promises of God. Even though they haven't been fully revealed, we can be confident that God keeps his promises. It says this in Hebrews 6, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. How can we possibly hope to please the God of truth if we don't value the truth in every single thing we say? Jesus declares the importance of truth in the Gospels. He's telling his disciples what it means to follow him, the connection between truth, between freedom and discipleship when he says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A commandment or a commitment rather to the truth in our speech, 
on the largest scale, the most important moments of our lives, all the way down to the smallest whisper, shows our allegiance to the God of truth. But just as significantly, a disregard for the truth reveals different allegiances. John chapter 8, just a few verses later than what we just read, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Any form of lying, from perjury all the way down to gossip or the, just the massaging the truth that we'd sometimes do to make ourselves look better, to make situations a little less uncomfortable, all of that, and this is going to sound extreme, but all of that is satanic. It is the tactic of the serpent that we see in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve first sin. Consider these words from Genesis. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall, neither eat of the, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the serpent's tactics here. First, in verse 2, he misinterprets God's word. He casts doubt on God's word. The serpent knows the answer to the question that he asks. When he says, did not God say, he knows the answer to that, but he has ulterior motives. And so he conceals the truth to the question that he asks, and he makes assumptions about God's character. He casts doubt on God's character. This is followed in verse 3 by an untruth told by the woman. In her rebuke of the serpent, she doesn't give exactly what Jesus, or excuse me, exactly what God says. She only gives half the truth. But she has fallen for the lie that the serpent has told her about God's character. Rather than saying exactly what God is saying, rather than giving the exact truth, she says, God doesn't even want us touching the, tr- touching the fruit, she claims, even though that's not true. It's an untruth. It's a statement where it shows that she has fallen for the deceit of the serpent. And this culminates in the outright lie of verses 4 and 5. The serpent rejects the truth of God's word. He absolutely outright rejects it, and he paints a new picture of what he claims to be true. And as we know, the rest is history. And as we look at Genesis 3, we might ask, well, why is it, this, why is it that Satan lies? Why is it that the serpent lies to Adam and to Eve? And it's not entirely clear from that passage, but as we look at the rest of, biblical, of the biblical story, the rest of redemptive history, I think we can say at least two reasons. The first one, or the first reason, is that Satan lied, and he still does, because he hated and he still hates God. 
He still hates the truth about God. He hates the truth about how God has ordered creation. And so by lying, it's his clever way to undermine the truth of of what God has established and ultimately destroys the relationship between God and humanity. He uses his lie because he hates God. There's a second reason. Satan lied and, and he still lies because he rebels against God's plan. He refuses to acknowledge the truth of the created order. He refuses to acknowledge that God is the one who is sovereign, that God is the ruler, and instead, the serpent sets up his own kingdom, and he claims to be the sovereign in that kingdom. The father of lies has built his entire life's work on lies. And so consider what those two reasons mean for us when we lie. Consider what those motivations of the serpent say about our own motivations concerning God when we bend the truth. Now, we may not go as far as the serpent as an outright hatred of God when we lie, but when we lie, we are showing a similar heart, whether that is conscious or not. It shows a disregard for God. It shows a lack of value for God's commitment to the truth. It is flippant toward God's plan, towards God's view of the truth, the fact that God values truth. It shows that we don't care about the relationships that God cares about. Our attitude toward truth, in a very real way, reveals our allegiance, whether good or bad. And there's one final implication of this, com- of this commandment, and says, we must speak the truth in love. We must speak the truth in love. The book of James reveals how powerful the tongue is, how important the tongue is. It is a tool for incredible good, and it is a weapon that is used for incalculable evil. And so the implication of this commandment is not just to Avoid lying, not just to avoid perjury, stretching the truth, bending the truth. It's also a commitment for us to share the truth, to pursue the truth in a way that values and cultivates relationships with one another through love. You see, some people place a great value on the truth and they have no regard for love. When Crystal and I lived in the Chicago area, we attended a small church in the west suburbs. And everyone there knew that I was in seminary, uh, but they had never actually had an opportunity to see if I was uh, (laughs) going to be a good pastor or not. And I had never had the opportunity to express my pastoral giftings or show those. And so the first time I was asked to preach, I remember uh, things went pretty well. And I remember after the service, uh, Crystal and I, uh, we were surrounded by people who were just complimenting us. They were affirming us, encouraging us, showering with us with love. Some of them were cracking jokes that we knew were jokes, and they were, they were saying, man, your, your sermon's bad. And the reason they were saying that is because it was clear that they wanted us to stay in Chicago and not go elsewhere when I graduated. But there was this one person from the congregation who came up to me afterward, and, and in the midst of this crowd, just said to me, you forgot three or four crucial points in your sermon as, as you look at that text. Now, I'll tell you something. One of the worst times to criticize someone who works at a church is right after a church service. 
Even if it's true, even if it could be helpful, that's not a great time to be loving, to actually consider their, their feelings. And so I, I consider what this man said, and even if it was objectively true, and it wasn't in that case, it was still immensely unkind. And some people have this proclivity toward the truth where they are committed to the truth and they see themselves as a martyr. And the reason why no one likes me is just because I am committed to the truth. And the real reason is because they're just not a nice person. See, God is committed to the truth, but he wants us to do so in a way that is loving. Ephesians chapter four reveals to us why this is so important how we can use our tongue in a way that glorifies God. And it shows this double value for a sanctified tongue. First, a sanctified tongue is a benefit or is a value to others. Ephesians 4, 29 says this, let no, uncor- uh, no, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. A tongue that speaks the truth in love builds others up and is actually used by God to be a conduit of grace. What an incredible charge. What a powerful responsibility that our tongues can be used by God to encourage and build up the saints. Just a few verses earlier, Paul writes this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Speaking the truth is of such great value to God, has such a high value when it's done with love, because we are one body and we are given to one another to encourage each other through grace-filled truth. That's one reason why it is such a high calling to speak the truth in love. But there's a second reason that's found in in Ephesians 4 as well. Verse 15 says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When you use your tongue in a grace-filled way, and not just furthers the growth of those who are around you, but it also furthers your growth as well. It encourages you to grow as well. As you exhort others to the truth, you're actually exhorting yourself to the truth. As you are encouraging others to grow, you're also encouraging yourself to grow too. No wonder God places such an important high value on speaking the truth, but doing it in love. because God cares about relationships. God cares about your relationships with one another. God cares about our relationships with him. And that's really what these implications from this text, this just one small verse, they show us, they give us a window into our soul. Our speech is a window into our soul, whether we use it for good or for evil. And put it simply, your speech reveals your heart. And that heart is either one that glorifies God or it trivializes God. Your speech reveals your heart. 
Is it a heart that glorifies God or trivializes Him? Ask yourself, what does your speech do? Ask yourself, how do I handle the truth? How do I value my relationships with my speech from the biggest moments, from the biggest stages, all the way down to the smallest, seemingly insignificant, unseen moments? What do they reveal about your heart? Romans chapter 1, verse 25 reminds us that each and every one of us has fallen for the lie of the serpent. Each and every one of us has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And what's more, each and every one of us is guilty of abusing the glorious gift of speech to destroy relationships for selfishness, to further our own means for selfish gain, giving no thought to the destruction we leave in our path. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy makes it clear that we are counted among those who are cursed by God when we break this commandment daily. We are counted among the cursed when we break this commandment daily, and yet Christ who never spoke a deceitful word, who always spoke the truth in love his entire life, became the curse for us so that we could be redeemed from the curse brought upon us by our own tongues. Galatians chapter 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to us, come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That is the good news of this commandment. This commandment is actually a way of speaking truth in love to each and every one of us. It tells us of the lies that each and every one of us has said It reminds us or convicts us of the lies that we have spouted, the untruths that we have spun, the deceptions that we have expounded. And yet it does so with a purpose. It does so to point us to the grace that is found in Christ. Your speech reveals your heart, and that is going to be a heart that either glorifies God or it trivializes him. What is your speech reveal about you. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear the high, high, high calling of this text, I know at least for me, I can say who is worthy. And even as The Apostle John says in Revelation 5, who is worthy to take the seal and open the scroll? There is none worthy except for you. And we thank you for the incredible price that you paid, the cost that you paid for each and every one of us. What an incredible, glorious gift. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.